This podcast is brought to you by two Sociology 101 students at the University of San Diego. Hi, my name is Mikhail Philpott, and I'm from San Francisco, California. My name is Mia Rakowski, and I'm from Simsbury, Connecticut. And today we'll be discussing the questions of how does where you grew up impact your social identities, and how has attending the University of San Diego affected your social identities? Um, First, we wanted to look at our social identity wheel and our wheel of oppression and see how these are impacted by where we live and our individual circumstances, as well as um, on a larger societal scale. So the social identity wheel consists of categories of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, sex, sexual orientation, national origin, first language, physical and emotional ability, age, religion, and race. And so... Um, by looking at this wheel, we are able to see how our identities play into society and how these identities shape our dynamics with the social world and with other people in society. Next, we have the oppression wheel, which consists of the categories of race, gender, class, sexual orientation, religion, and ability. And um, this kind of shows us where our privileges lie and also sources that may cause us oppression or, um, like, hardships within society. And so for my uh, wheel of oppression, my race is white, gender, I'm a female, cis female, class, a middle class, sexual orientation, bisexual, religion, Catholic, and ability, I'm physically able. So by looking at this wheel of oppression, we're able to see that I possess one border group, or one target group, which is the female as a gender, um, because we live in a patriarchal society. And then I have three border groups, um, my sexual orientation as a bisexual woman, middle class, and my religion, because I am a Catholic. And then my privilege lies within me being physically able and my race is white. So similarly, I also identify as a white female, Um, I classify myself as upper middle class. Um, I identify myself as heterosexual and Roman Catholic, which is a border group, and I am physically able. And so we have found some similarities as well as some differences in our wheels, like being white, cisgender um, females, Um, but also a couple differences within our sexual orientation, our social class, as well as a little bit in our religion. And so um, I was wondering, how has living in San Francisco affected your identities? Because we both define ourselves as somewhat middle class. Um, So do you think this differs, this definition differs because of where we live? Or how do you define middle class? That's a super interesting question, especially because living in the Bay Area, um, housing and the housing market and just um, prices in general are extremely, extremely expensive. Um, you know, here houses will start at at least $900,000 and um, most houses sell for over a million dollars. Um, usually these houses are two to three bedrooms with um, two and a half to three bathrooms. And so I would say Um, having a house like that, being able to pay for your own property is definitely considered middle class because of how expensive housing and property is in the Bay Area. I also believe that, um, 
having a job that pays at least $100,000 a year is middle class. I feel like for a lot of other areas in the United States, that is something that is a luxury to be able to have six figures a year. But in the Bay Area, I feel like in order to have a sustainable living for yourself and for if you, especially if you're providing for someone else, that is definitely a necessity. Um, I don't really think necessarily that um, cars or things like that play into your status here because of our extensive um, public transportation, especially because of how much traffic there is. A lot of people with well-paying jobs will take BART, they'll take Muni, they'll take public transportation, so I don't think that plays into it as much, but I definitely believe that owning property here um, definitely constitutes as being middle class. It's um, really interesting to hear that about the Bay Area because um, it's a lot different in Connecticut, what I would define as middle class, because um, a job paying about $60,000 a year would be considered normal um, in the town that I grew up in, which is relatively um, rural. There are farms, lots of back roads, and it is very, very normal for people to have um, a house with um, a bedroom for all of the family members, as well as possibly a guest bedroom. So for example, um, if you have two children, your parents share a room and you may have a guest bedroom. So a four bedroom house, two and a half bathrooms would be considered completely normal. Um, and then unlike San Francisco, it is very normal to have, um, a car, um, I would consider myself upper middle class because um, the people in my house who can drive do have cars. There's not a lot of public transportation in Connecticut unless you're in one of the cities. Um, so it is very, very normal for people to drive, especially because there's a lot of back roads. Um, and it's interesting, too, thinking about the housing market because um, in Connecticut, with the lower salary being normal, um, it's most houses, a four-bedroom house, would be about $300,000 to $500,000 maximum. So that's more than double a three-bedroom house in San Francisco may be. And so while one may have more in Connecticut for less money and be considered middle class, um, I almost... I feel like they would consider themselves a lot lower class in San Francisco if they were to deal with the pricing. Yeah, the pricing is super weird. Um, just like a personal experience, my cousin just bought a condo here for $770,000, two bedroom, two bathroom. The down payment was up towards $200,000 for a condo. So it's just so incredibly like mind-blowing to see these differences in different regions in the United States. Right. And thinking about what you could buy with $700,000 in a small town in Connecticut, you would, you would almost be living in a mansion. Wow. And furthermore, thinking about um, the difference between you living in a city versus me living in rural Connecticut, um, I noticed that on our wheels of oppression, we both identified being um, experiencing oppression from being a female. So how do you think that you've been affected um, by that because of where you live? Um, yeah, I definitely noticed differences, especially because I do have two brothers. Um, 
the difference in growing up a female and the difference of growing up a male in a city. Um, one major thing that grows uh, stands out to me is the fact that at a young age, I was taught to always be aware of my surroundings, taught of predatory men, taught that um, me being a female could possibly cause m- m- a threat just because of the gender I identify as. And so that was super interesting, especially growing up, going to school in downtown San Francisco, taking the bus every day, walking from the bus station up to school every day without fail. I would get comments from older men. I would get comments saying, hey, little mama, how you doing? Or you look really nice today or comments more like grotesque on um, maybe how a certain part of my body looks. And thinking about it, at the time, it started, I was as young as 13, and these men were like, um, could have been my father, older than my father. So it was really interesting, like, seeing that. Um, Also, I would have to walk to swim practice every day after school. It was, like, 10 blocks from school, so I'd be walking in the Tenderloin downtown, and multiple times I was followed and harassed by men. And one time it was really bad, whereas to someone else on the street noticed and decided to be a good Samaritan and came up to me, told me this guy was following me. I had noticed, but I didn't really know what I could do as a young girl. I was probably 16 or 17, and I wasn't sure, like, how I was going to stop an older man from following me. I was kind of scared. I didn't know what to do. And luckily, one other man helped me out and yelled at them to leave me alone. Then I had to buy a taser and some pepper spray just to defend myself. And, you know, with San Francisco being a large city known for sex trafficking victims, like, I was constantly told by my dad and my mom to always be on guard. You know, they just wanted to take care of me, but it was interesting to see how my brothers didn't really have to grow up um, learning about having to watch their back or take care of themselves or worrying about being kidnapped or sex trafficked or something like that or just being commented on because of the way they look in a certain pair of jeans or something. It's so interesting to me thinking about how that's happened to you walking to school because living in Connecticut, I've never seen people on the streets in general. Um, I I have experienced a little bit of oppression in the classroom being a female, but never on the streets. Um, I know what that's like being hyper aware in cities, especially um, going on day trips to New York City. Um, it's interesting, too, about your brothers not having to be hyper aware about their surroundings, because when I used to go with my brother, he would walk walk past people on the street like it was nothing, whereas I would be nervous. What if they say something to me? What if they... they what if they come after me, follow me? And that's not something that had ever crossed his mind. Um, but back on the topic of school, um, I was wondering if you've experienced oppression in school um, being a female, because last year I took a banking class and I was the only female in the class. And every time I would raise my hand in class, um, the guys would kind of roll their eyes. I would be the kids up in the class. It's the girl, of course, is raising her hand, Um, whereas it was really a topic that I was interested in, um, and I felt like I was being looked down upon for being interested in the topic because um, I must must have been raising my hand just to get a good grade, Um, and I was wondering if you've experienced something similar to that inside of the classroom. 
yeah, that's super, like, relatable because um, I'm someone who's very interested in STEM-heavy courses. I love uh, neurobiology and um, courses like that, and a lot of the time STEM is heavily dominated by men or boys, and so for me in the classroom, I have definitely noticed that being in partner work or just raising my hand to answer or working with a boy, I've noticed that anytime I pose a critical thinking question that is of, of my own thoughts and creative ideas, um, not always, but a lot of the time I've noticed that it's shot down immediately. No, that's not correct. This is what I think. And obviously what I think is correct. And just kind of debunking that and analyzing it, I think that the view of hegemonic femininity does not include intelligence or educational thinking or critical thinking in a sense like that. So when boys in the classroom see strong, smart, intelligent women or girls, I feel their masculinity is immediately threatened because um, in their mind, in the patriarchal society, femininity does not leave room for intelligence. It's strictly based on beauty, not brains. So I think that sometimes um, females having their own thoughts and critical thinking and being able to think for themselves threatens um, male dominance and male masculinity. Yeah, it's definitely interesting looking into hegemonic masculinity in the classroom because being the only girl in the classroom in that banking class, I feel like if I would ask the question and get an answer, the teacher would say, great question, it almost, it took away almost a sense of, of dominance in the classroom because, you know, I was getting, I was getting, um, like, my question was being appreciated. I was getting attention for something that I said. Um, and as you said, there, it's, it's almost as if there's no room for, um, for intelligence in the definition of hegemonic femininity. Yeah. And I also feel like leadership roles are limited. And I know that you said you had a personal experience with leadership and being a female. And I, I think that would be something really interesting to analyze here. Yeah. So I was actually a captain of the men's rowing team at my school. And we actually had an incident. So I was a coxswain um, on the rowing team for the boys and when I was elected captain, one of the boys was very upset by it, saying, why can she be a captain of the men's rowing team if she's a girl? And I think that was definitely um, a wake-up call in terms of what the definition is of hegemonic masculinity. Um, that I was, I was being faced in a situation where I was, where a male figure was trying to tell me that I, I shouldn't be allowed to to have a leadership role um, over over him. Um, it could have been upset that he was not elected, um, but it was it was taken out in a way that it felt like I, I wasn't good enough to be in that position. Yeah, and it's super interesting to see how anytime a woman asserts dominance over majority males, it's seen as threatening, it's seen as not right, it's seen as unnatural. But then we look at society as a whole and the majority of our leaders are men and there's not a lot of diversity in sex in political roles or social power and things like that or world power. So I just find that super interesting how um, 
hegemonic masculinity allows for a dominant male figure even if there is a majority female but then when the roles are switched it is seen as threatening to the masculinity yeah definitely and it's even seen in the fact that we've yet to have a female president and i think that that's that's a, a perfect example of a leadership role that's that's yet to be filled um by someone who identifies themselves as female. And I think that's something that we can definitely um, learn to work on in the future. So I was also wondering back to the um, wheel of oppression, I noticed a, a difference between our sexual orientations on the wheel of how we identify ourselves. And so I was wondering um, how, I know you identify yourself as bisexual, and I was wondering um, how, where you grew up, how that's impacted you and whether or not um, USD has affected that social identity for you. Have you felt more accepted here? Have you felt welcomed here or has it done the opposite? Yeah, I find that a super interesting question, especially because USD is a Catholic institution. Um, growing up in San Francisco, obviously that's known as a hub for gay culture and gay acceptance. It's a, whenever people hear San Francisco, I feel like Uh, one way or another, they correlate it with LGBTQ um, acceptance. Um, So I've always been grateful and lucky to grow up in a city where um, the majority of time I was accepted, but then also, even within such an accepting city, I did attend a Catholic high school, and there we felt very um, unwanted or unwelcome, especially because our school was run by the archdiocese, which is basically like the archbishop of San Francisco. And um, we were not allowed to have an LGBTQ allies club. Um, We did have a club, it was named Tough Club, but it wasn't recognized as an actual club of the school. Instead, we had to meet at lunch times once a week. And because it wasn't a recognized club, there was also an incident at our school where the archdiocese rewrote... um, the terms of being a teacher and said that teachers were no longer teachers. They were instead ministers of the church. So a lot of the time, gay teachers at our school or um, LGBTQ teachers at our school um, were told they weren't allowed to express themselves. They weren't allowed to teach any um, LGBTQ content. They weren't allowed to let anybody know that they were gay or bi or, or however they identified strictly because they were ministers of the church and that's not what the church accepts. However, now going to USD, um, I was thoroughly surprised how accepting they are. They have a DSGA, they have LGBTQ plus allies commons, they have the spring drag fashion show, and it shows, I, it really shows how even um, at a Catholic school, they're accepting of all people, and that's really how I grew up um, in a Catholic household, that's really what I felt or I took away from the Catholic education is that Catholicism accepts all people. God accepts all people in his image. So it's really comforting to know that USD provides a hub for everybody. That's so great to hear um, that you can continue with your spirituality and also feel accepted here. And, um, you know, from my perspective, um, I identify as heterosexual and I've seen um, what you've been talking about kind of in action um, with feeling a little bit targeted in school. Um, I also identify as Catholic and I went to Sunday school and occasionally at Sunday school, I would see 
um, there were two students in the class that identified as gay and they would really have to think hard about what they would wear to um, their classes because they didn't want to be seen as people who wouldn't be accepted by the church. And that's definitely something that's interesting to look at because as a straight female, I've never had to think about what to wear to class in order to feel accepted into the church. And it's something that I'm really glad that USD has has changed for you to be able to feel accepted here and for others to feel accepted here while also being able to practice their religion and feel accepted because after all, that's what religion is about. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially because how you're saying with the clothing, I experienced that a lot too. Sometimes the way I dress growing up, I definitely did not. People would look at me and that's not the typical thing a girl would wear. I would constantly get questions growing up. Is she gay? Is she lesbian? Things like that. And I was just fifth grade, fourth grade, sixth grade. So it was very confusing. But at the end of the day, gender and sexuality are a social construct. The way you dress does not define who you are as a person. Clothing is a social construct. It doesn't mean anything. There's no, It is us who puts the meaning behind that. And another thing that we've discussed that is socially constructed is race. And I think that would be um, interesting to dive into really quickly because we both in this category of race are privileged group. We're white. And so a lot of the times we do not have to think about a lot of the things that um, people of color, black Americans have to think about kind of how we were talking about as females, we have to be hyper aware and we're taught things that boys aren't. People of color are taught that from a young age, too, and we don't have to um, recognize certain things that they um, have to be aware of every single day because it could cost them their life. It could cost them a stereotype. It it could be the end for them. Right, and especially with um, the current police brutality issues going on in the U.S., it's definitely something um, that's interesting to discuss from a perspective um, where we're both white because it's it's difficult to see people be blamed for things, hurt for things that weren't their fault, but simply because of the way they look. And it's definitely something um, that we need to recognize that we have we have privilege. Yeah, and I think especially with us being white, we are the privileged group. So here I feel like now us potentially being allies, being anti-racist, being um, very active in the fight against it could aid the cause because as the privileged group who has like set up this system of oppression towards people of color, we have the power because we are privileged to dismantle that as well. So it's interesting to see how even though it's a problem for the targeted community, it's really the privileged groups in these situations that have the power to change that for everybody else. Um. This has been a very interesting discussion, and it was super interesting to see how we could tie in our own individual identities and how they're impacted in the whole scheme of our individual societies and on a large-scale societal level. Thank you for having this conversation with me today, Mia. Thank you, Michaela. Bye, you guys.